listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you something, people. My guest today, I'm very excited to have on. He's been dubbed the man with a golden voice, which is funny because my wife dubs me the guy with the irritating voice. And this guy, though, he's been, he's just, he has a new album out. He has some shows coming up in the fall. I'm sure he's very excited to talk about his career and his new album, which is called 101. And my guest is Paul Carrick. How you doing, Paul? Yeah, good, Steve. How are you? Good. Now, tell me about the new album because I, I, you know, it's you. You had a health issue in the middle, so did that throw off your whole recording as a musician when you're in sync and you're ready and you go, "Holy crap!" I mean, what happened? Uh, yeah. It wasn't helpful, but um, no, it wasn't that. I mean, I was good three quarters of the way through making the album, which I made pretty much on my own in my own little studio here at home playing everything and recording it you know and everything uh i got a thing called shingles which is a very unpleasant kind of uh virus that um it's quite painful and um you feel rubbish and it went on for a while it went on for four five six weeks before i got rid of it but the only thing was it kind of messed up my schedule a bit because i I was on schedule to to release the album in June. I told everybody it was going to be out. A few people had ordered it, you know, paid for it. And then uh, I had to tell them, sorry, you're not getting it until (laughs) September. But uh, apart from that, no, I'm fine now. Now, did you start the wheels turning on this album before coronavirus or during? I mean, how did that all affect you? No, there was only one track. I think that I messed around with uh, before the whole virus thing. No, we were on the road. You know, we uh, had a whole year of uh, touring lined up. We started in the UK, January, February, March. We play kind of theatres in the UK, which is great. We love it. We've built up a, a real nice thing. Um, and uh, I was supposed to be going with my band to all over Europe and Australia and uh, Japan even. But um, I was also supposed to do some shows with Eric Clapton because I've been playing uh, organ in his band for the last eight or nine years. So it was a full year, but um, middle of March, no, the whole thing got shut down. So um, um, we, we all thought it was, you know, going to be for a few weeks and we rescheduled stuff and all that like everybody did and um and then it became apparent that it wasn't gonna be like that so no i had nothing really uh i just started with a blank sheet of paper and um lo and behold there we are i've I've never had so much time to mess around in the studio that's one thing I was going to ask you about that because I've had a lot of people say the one thing that they, when they tour a lot, one, they get to spend more time with people. They get their family and friends, which they never really got to because you're always on the road. And two, they have a lot of free time because people don't understand when you guys tour, you tour. It's not like you can just sit there and go, oh yeah, okay, you know, I'm going to just jet here, jet here. You're on the road. So, so when you, when you were sitting there and finding this free time in the studio, how did it affect your creativity? Did you did you feel you were more creative? I mean, how did it affect you? I think in the long run, I have been more creative in that I've had more 
it's not unusual for me to work on my own when I'm writing and because I play a bit of everything and I kind of at least make demos of the of tracks but I, even in the past I've made you know recorded tracks by myself so that's not that unusual um, I didn't have any plan to make any kind of album I really just started to come in the studio to take my mind off things and, and to keep ticking over you know because as I, as I said we expected to be back on the road before now and you know you have to keep things going you have to keep the voice ticking over and, um, and everything but um, I just started playing with my toys in here, you know, and um, that's kind of the way I write is just messing about and um, subconsciously stuff comes out. I think that's what it is. I, I very rarely have any kind of concept or plan. I'm not that clever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as a multi-instrumentalist, what is it like? Like, okay, I want to see the, through you. Paul Carrick walks into his home studio he has instruments everywhere. Do you sit there and go, okay, I'm going to start with this one, then this, or you just go, well, you know what, today, today I think I'll be guitar. I'm in the keyboard. How do you do that? Because, you know, a lot of people just play one instrument or they sing. You do everything and you're right. You're, you're a Renaissance man in, in, in that sense. How do you decide what, like when you just walk in for a whim, I mean, do you sit there and go, I just want to play guitar and have some fun today? Yeah, there's no plan really. I mean, uh, as I say, I've got all the, I've got a lot of toys here. I might get a little drum groove going, uh, you know, program a little part, something to help help along the way. I'll probably sit down at the keyboard and sing. And uh, I'll sing nonsense, you know, the famous scrambled eggs. Um, and usually what happens is I might sing, sing something that really works. It's... It, you know, and uh, then I have to sit down and make some kind of sense out of it. But uh, that's the short story, really. There's, there's no plan to it. I think it's pretty spontaneous. You know. Now, I guess something. Yeah. No, you've you've been having you've had such a long career. I mean, you started toying, I believe, when you were 17. What what spurred you to get into music? Was you, was your household a musical household, or what made you start this? unbelievable track that you've made it was the fear of having a proper job i think <laughs> as my mother always used to say but well we didn't have a particularly musical household my dad was from a musical family he encouraged that but i mean we lived in a very small place we lived in a the, the back of a store we lived because my, my mom had a little store selling paint and wallpaper, and my dad was what we call a painter and decorator. He would go around in his little van to people's houses and decorate their house for them. I mean, you know. And we lived in the back of this shop in the one room, two rooms upstairs, and an attic which had some bits and pieces in it that my dad used to dabble on a bit on drums. And so that's kind of how I got interested in it. But um, there is some truth in the fact when I say, you know, I didn't want a proper job because most people back then had a job. I, I grew up in Sheffield. It's an industrial city, steel city, engineering, coal mining, all this stuff. 
and I really wasn't cut out for it, <laughs> and I wasn't very academic whatsoever, and I just knew that I wanted to be in, in a band. I mean, I didn't have any hopes of having a career or being on the TV or anything. I just wanted to be... There were loads of bands with their little van, <laughs> the gear in the back, and they were playing all night, every night of the week, some of these guys in pubs and what we call working men's clubs. And, you know, that was as far as my uh, horizons, my ambitions went. Was there any influence you had, though, at that young age? Like, some people say they saw the Beatles. Some people say, you know, oh, yeah. things like that. Was there any influence that, you know, you knew you wanted to do it, but is there anything you saw that you said, okay, I can do this? Well, I did see the Beatles. I saw them on a couple of occasions at Sheffield City Hall. But we saw all the acts, all the acts came through so the Stones, Beatles, uh, Chuck Berry, um, Dylan, Roy Orbison, Buddy Holly. Oh, I missed. I didn't see Buddy Holly. I'm lying there because I was a bit too young for that. But my brother did. So, but before that, it was groups like we had a band called The Shadows in the, the UK. They were an instrumental. They, they backed Cliff Richard, who's an, a big artist over here. And... Um, it was groups like the Ventures, you know, the electric guitar, instrumental bands. My brother, you know, was bringing home blues and stuff like that. He's older than me, four years older. But it was the Mersey thing that really, you know, that was sent me over the top when the, the Liverpool thing happened. And that was it. I was like, oh, that's what I've got to do that, you know. Now, what instrument did you pick up first? What was, what was your go-to in the beginning? Uh, drums, because, you know, really you didn't need any musical uh, knowledge. You didn't have to worry about notes and things like that. No, it's literally this thing up in the attic. There was a little kind of a toy bass drum. There was a snare drum. And I had boxes, cardboard boxes or whatever, and play along to records like that. that so drums is how I started. I didn't do anything. My brother played guitar, so there was always a guitar lying around. And um, when I was about 16 or 17, there was a, a band, a local band, a soul band. And uh, they needed an organ player. There weren't too many organ players around. And the ones that were in big demand, but this, these guys weren't that good. So I got my mum to sign the what we call a higher purchase agreement where you pay you know on the week every week you play and I got a little organ and I just kind of taught myself to play with a few chords and that you know now when when did you, when did they find out about your voice because everyone raves about your voice and that must be a, I mean that's you can't better get a better compliment than the man with the golden voice I mean that's one of those things you must go and I know you're hum, you're a humble guy and you're probably uh, you know but that's that's a big compliment when did you start singing like when did people go holy crap Paul this kid Paul can sing yeah not in bands uh, when I was a kid people commented that I had a nice voice at, at school and stuff. And um, although I never was into the choirs or anything like that, it's only when I when I was a little kid, I was one of them little kids that they put on a stool and you'd sing. All mine, Papa, was the, my, my party piece, apparently. 
but no, not in bands because we usually would had a, had a designated singer, a front a front guy, and I just did a few bit of backing vocals. So it wasn't really until we formed the band Ace, um, and that's when I started to sing. Now, how did that come about? How did it come about that? You form this band, and it decides you're going to sing. Did you sit there and say, okay, I want to sing? Or did the band say, we heard Paul can sing? How did that happen? No, I did. I was the last one in, actually. I didn't form the band. I was the last one in. It was two other guys, two singer-songwriters, guitar players, that formed the band with a couple of guys from a band I've been in previous. And... Um, they wanted just wanted a keyboard player really, but I, I started to write songs myself, and uh, gradually muscled in on the act, you know. And uh, I started to write more and more, and if I wrote it, I sang it, you know. It was that's all. That's how it worked. Now, what was it like when you're when Ace started getting popular? You have a you have a hit single. Was it hard for you guys to get a record deal, or what? What was the whole uh, events that happened there? Yeah, well, it was pretty hard because we weren't that good but um there was this thing in the early 70s in london they called pub rock and it was basically just you know uh post progressive rock sort of thing where people were like oh that's this is getting silly now so we just sort of started to play rock and roll in pubs for fun and beer money but funnily enough, then the, some of these bands started getting little record deals with the, um, the major labels and stuff. And we were trying, but people, a few people came down as having a look at us and we thought, mm, maybe not. Um, but we did have the fact that we wrote our own stuff. That worked in our favor a bit. And funnily enough, when I wrote that song, How Long, which was one that became our big hit we were playing that in our set and that kind of caught a few people eyes so we were kind of the last ones on that scene to get signed it was a small label though, very small label but it was affiliated to abc records in america and that's how uh when we made the album we made the album in two weeks it was basically our, our set that we played and how long was the one that stuck out and somehow or other it got through the net and became a big old hit now it becomes a hit now now what happened to ace what would why did you guys go separate ways well we had we were the proverbial one hit wonders you know i mean we had that big hit it was fantastic for a while we came to the america it's like my god you can imagine 1975 from austere UK, where it was like <laughs> industrial strife and strikes and blackouts, you know, iron. And we suddenly were in America and it was just marvelous. We, we had a whale of a time, too good a time, probably. And um, we, we were on the road all the time. And then they said, right, we need another album. And we didn't have any songs because we, you know, it was. And we we thought we were the Beatles, and we'd go into the studio and write it in the studio. You know, that didn't work out too too good. So it was uh, a slow, steady decline, basically. Now you're you're coming off that, and and, and you know you played with Roxy Music. Now, as a kid, were you a fan of Roxy? I mean, how did that happen? 
No, I wasn't really a fan of Roxy. We we were the antithesis of that. We were the scruffy, boring denim, black plaid, scruffy lads, and they they were you know kind of art students, and I I think and you know the glam rock. So I don't even know how that happened. Oh, I do know how it happened. I because uh, Brian Ferry had made some solo albums with different musicians. And these were the guys on the London session scene that I looked up to, you know, these were the guys I thought were the best players around and I wanted to learn from them and I would hang out with them. And we had a little band and they were doing the Brian Ferry records. Then when Roxy reformed to make a Roxy record, I think Brian insisted on using some of these guys. And they kind of rolled me into playing on some sessions on a couple of their albums. And then I went on the road with them, and I had a great time. I thought it was really, really good fun, actually. Now, when you were touring with them, were you still thinking about a solo career? Were you still writing songs? I mean, because I'm sure when you come into a unit like that, it's Brian's show. I mean, it's just, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what was, what, were you, what was going through your mind? What, did you have plans in the future? Or were you just really enjoying being on the road with Roxy Music? Yeah, I was enjoying it, but I, I don't know what I was doing, actually. I was just drifting around. I kind of thought that I was a singer-songwriter, but um, it wasn't really what was happening at that time. In the those kind of late 70s, you know, in the punk rock and new wave. And I was like this sort of boring guy who wrote love songs, you know, or influenced by soul and that kind of music. It wasn't really happening, you know. So I was just kind of happy to have my head above water and be doing something. Um, but in my heart of hearts, I thought I was a singer-songwriter, but I didn't know how it was going to happen. Now, Squeeze, you sang Tempted, which is funny. That was like my, me and my high school girlfriend's song. You know, we always love that song. And there's so many people that love that song. How did, it, how did you end up in Squeeze? And then how did you end up singing that song? Well, it was post-Roxy. Um, Squeeze had been uh, a split with their manager, Miles Copeland. They got involved with a guy called Jake Riviera who uh, managed Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, and that whole stable. And uh, Jake was a crazy guy. He was an amazing character. Founded Stiff Records with Dave Robinson, uh, which Stiff Records was, you know, the punk um, new wave label. And, well, I knew Jake when he'd been a roadie, but he'd become this larger-than-life character. I mean, he was something to deal with. These record companies didn't know what hit them when he went in there and he'd jump on the desk and kick everything around, grab them by the neck. And it was, uh, but anyway, he was managing Squeeze and their keyboard player had left. His, there's a guy called Jules Holland who became a household name in the UK um, fronting a TV show. And, um, they were trying all kinds of keyboard players, and in the end, and Jake said, "Well, what, what about Paul Carrick? He's uh, he's back in town. He's been playing with Roxy Music and that." And the, so I went down and uh, kind of auditioned, I guess. And um, this is right before they started an album called East Side Story, 
so they they gave me the gig i didn't know if i was joining the band or if i was just you know playing on the record um elvis costello was producing the album and um we started messing around with the song tempted which they had already recorded a version of that song completely different but we started doing it in the soul kind of style and elvis suggested he's hey why don't, why don't paul sing this that would work with him great God, such a great song you know um so it was a bit weird obviously because it was the track that they took off the record and it kind of helped to break squeeze a little bit in the u.s where they've been knocking on the door for so long but the identity of squeeze was always the singers chris and glenn and their songs so it was a bit of a weird situation but you know anyway it's history so, so it becomes popular, the song. You're all over MTV, because that's what people, I always tell people, MTV played videos back then, which you, I want to talk about your new videos. I've watched them. I'm glad you made videos for the new album. But when, how, now your, your face is on TV, you're singing this hit. Does that help you parlay into a solo record deal? Because people go, well, here's a guy who he's singing on a hit. I mean, is that what happened? Is that why you ended up leaving Squeeze? Because someone offered you? Not really. It's not. I don't work like that, honestly. I mean, it maybe looks like that on paper, but it's not how I am. I'm. I'm. I'm a. T I am a team guy, you know, and I've never been that sort of pushy or, uh, you know, thoughtful. But um, as I said, the identity of Squeeze was the two singers and the songs, and um, I was just happy to be you know, doing that really. But I did have um, ambitions of being a songwriter and a singer and it, they, they squeeze didn't need another singer and they didn't need another songwriter who wrote the kind of songs I write, you know, which are very simple squeeze, much more edgy and interesting. Um, and actually when squeeze is split up from, from this guy Jake Riviera, that last they didn't last too long. So they he they split up, and I was talking to Jake, and he said, "I don't think you can get anywhere being the um, keyboard player in Squeeze. That's all you. That's all you'll be." So um, if I were you, I would um, you know try and do something yourself, and that's kind of what I did. Now, was that a lot of pressure on you? Because all of a sudden, you know. You 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 can do what you've been wanting to do. You want to sing. You want to be a singer songwriter. Do you feel pressure when you're making that first album because you're like, okay, now it's all on me. If something happens, it's not like with Ace. If there's a problem, we can blame everybody. This, if it screws up, they're going Carrick. It's you. Yeah, I guess so. But funnily enough, it didn't happen like that straight away anyway. Because the next thing I think I did was. Because one of the reasons, one of the reasons I left as well was because I wanted to play, work with Nick Lowe, and uh, who was married to, at that time to Carlene Carter. So the next thing on the agenda was Carlene. She was making an album. So I'd left Squeeze, but I was working, uh, you know, working again as sideman for Carlene. But it was it was fun, you know. I loved it, and I, I was, and then I worked with Nick on a couple of albums, and eventually. I got to make my album. Um, first one, it was called Suburban Voodoo. 
if you ever hear it, it's tracks now, and I have to go and have a lie down because it's quite fueled, shall we say? <laughs> but um, I did have a top thirty hit off that in the US. It's called "I Need You," and um, I don't know what happened then. There were, we know there was that album. There was a couple of albums with Nick. There were thousands of miles traveling on buses and opening up for people like the Cars and. Tom Petty, we did a lot for, of opening up for Petty, and as I say, miles and miles and miles. It was it was fun, and then it started to get a bit old. And we, Why? So, what is it like? You just said you can only listen to three tracks, and you and you lay down. What is it like when you reflect on that? Because we all grow in our lives, and we change our styles. I mean, when you sit back, I mean, you have to be proud of it. But do you sit there and sometimes you know say what was I thinking or is there something that you would do differently now with those songs? I don't even think about it to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, uh, it did have a four-star review in Rolling Stone, unbelievably. Um, no, I think it was me trying to be edgy, and uh, you know, Nick was doing a, a Nick a, a Nick Lowe production on it. He was very helpful in that respect. But I don't think it was what I was about, really. As I say, I'm more of a a mellow guy, I think. Um, so I don't... I hardly ever look back on any of that stuff, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm always trying to... Still want to try to make the great album <laughs> that I can do that, that I can sit back and be proud. But um, I have to keep going. Well, how did how did you find your groove after that? Then you know you said you've always you didn't want to be that. I mean, how did you get into the mind frame where you were like, "This is what I want to do. I don't want to do heavily fueled. I want to do what you've been saying the whole time. I'm a singer songwriter. I want to write this bluesy." Yeah. How did you find that groove? Well, it's been a while. It took a while, and it took a lot of uh, going around. Uh, cul-de-sacs and, and what have you. I mean, of course, then there, were, I, there was the involvement with Mike and the Mechanics, which, you know, was a successful commercial band. And I was there, in there as a singer. And, and that was interesting. And it was keeping the wolf from the door. You know, I mean, I had four kids and a mortgage back then. I still got four kids, but I've paid the mortgage off now. But um, I'm, I'm now paying their mortgage yeah. off. But... Uh, <laughs> So I was still meandering and, oh, I can do that. Okay, I'll do that. It wasn't until I made a couple of solo records. And it was back in the days when you'd make an album, it would cost a fortune. And they put out one single. And if it didn't hit, then they dropped you. I, I had one big, I had a top 10 hit from a solo album called, it was called Don't Shed a Tear. Right. That was a top 10 in the, in the US. And that seemed quite interesting for a while. Unfortunately, my wife got quite sick at that time. And um, things went on hold for a good, for, for a little while. She's fine now, fortunately. But um, it wasn't until I, I mean, as I say, I made several albums for several labels. And then I decided I'm just going to do this myself. I'm, I'm going to do it independently. I'm gonna, and, and I started at my own label. And the, and the first album on that was called Satisfy My Soul. And since then, I've been the uh, independent um, guy, which is difficult and small time, but it's been incredibly rewarding. I don't know how many albums I've made. It's quite a few. 
Some people are saying it's 17 albums. I don't know. I'm just looking for the next one, you know. <laughs> now, now, Mike, you mentioned Mike and Mechanics. How, how did that come about? Because, you know, it's someone from Genesis. You're like, wait a second. You know, it's like Mike Rutherford. And you know the band's going to be popular because Genesis was giant. How did, did they approach you? Did they know of you? Or, I mean, and how does, how does that make you feel when a band like that comes to you? Well, it wasn't necessarily going to be successful because Mike had made a couple of other solo albums that hadn't uh, gotten beyond the sort of Genesis hardcore, I don't think. It was all kind of very sort of rambling and all, you know, weird and progressive, I, I guess. I don't know too much about them, to be honest. But he got together with a commercial producer called Chris Neal, who kind of knocked his ideas because he had plenty of ideas but he, he this guy kind of came together and and knocked him together you remember phil collins as his career had just gone ballistic and i think mike had some time on his hands you know so uh, i think the record company said yeah yeah go on here go make a record you know anyway somebody had the great idea of putting him together with this guy chris neal and um he started to condense the songs make knock them into shape there's a longer story how long have you got i want to hear it okay so mike was writing songs with this guy called b.a robertson who's a, a scottish guy uh a lyricist um well you know he's, he's an all-around songwriter he was writing songs with mike now at this time i was still in a band with nick lowe somewhere in Sweden or somewhere in a, you know, in a little van with the gear in the back. And he'd written this song and he wanted to pitch it for a movie. And he said, you know what, we, who should we get to sing this? Uh, we should get that guy. Remember that song, How Long? That's how we should get him. Who was that? And they looked me up and he called me up and said, would you do us a favor and come around and, you know, do this? And I said, yeah, okay, because, you know, I'm like that. And you never know. So um, I went and did this demo song for him, which he was going to pitch. And he said, oh, by the way, I'm I'm writing songs with uh, Mike Rutherford from, uh, Rutherford from Genesis. And, you know, he's not going to sing. And we've got a couple of other guys. Would you fancy coming down and singing on a couple of tracks? And I said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And that's what I did. And the first, uh, I walked in the door the first time and 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 they had a track it was about seven minutes long three chords and it was silent running or can you hear me you know can you hear me and uh so i put the headphones on they said all we got at the moment is can you hear me can you just go and blues away and i did that and then uh, they said oh that sounds pretty good and ba said i'll go and write the lyrics now and, and that's how that came about so when did you get to start? I know you co-wrote some songs down the road. When did they give you the responsibility to let you start writing with them? It's a good question, actually. Um, I think because we had the success with the first album, the second album even better because we had The Living Years, which was a number one record, which I was singing on that. And... I think Mike just sort of invited me in on the songwriting aspect because prior to that, I'd just been a designated singer, really. 
Now you, you mentioned. Oh, go ahead. No, I was gonna say you mentioned about you know with the singing and songwriting that you had a, in your solo career. You had a top hit in the U.S. What was uh, what is that like when you when you have a solo hit in the U.S. Is that like a sign of achievement? Do people look at that going, oh, you know what, he's still making it in the U.S. Yeah, I don't know how they perceive that because um, are we talking about "Don't Shed a Tear"? Yeah. Yeah, I mean it was it was pretty exciting, um, but again, that album. It's called One Good Reason. That was produced by the same guy, this Chris Neal guy. And um, it, it's an 80s sounding record. It's very synth orientated, very programmed, very quantized. And I was happy to be, you know, having a little bit of success. But at the same time, most of the people that I knew and I loved and, and knew me are much more into kind of rootsy kind of music you know rock and roll soul r&b we we were really imposters on that scene you know and the sort of 80s synth stuff so um it again it was amazing to be in the chart but it didn't quite feel right somehow do you know what i mean yeah i mean i guess yeah because it's not truly what you i guess in your heart you wanted to do now yeah. When you, you, you know, you started your own record label, what goes into that? I mean, is there legal ramifications? Do you just sit there and say, okay, I'm going to record you? I mean, how did you start your own label? Well, for a start, I didn't have a clue how it worked because I'd been in bands, you know, wasting my time, getting drunk and doing all the stupid things. I didn't have a clue how a record got to market. I knew how to make a record. But I, I, after that, I didn't know what happened. Um, so you got to, so it was small time, and, and I'm my friend uh, Peter Van Hook, who was the original drummer in Mighty the Mechanics. He, he also had played with Van Morrison for years and years, and had a small jazz label, and he he had a, an idea how it worked. And he was very, very helpful in uh, getting me started. So, like I say, it wasn't a big, it wasn't like we borrowed a million bucks and set up a corporation. We just, it's like, okay, I've made this record. I don't want to go hawking it around the record companies. I like it the way it is. Because I knew what they'd say. They'd say, oh, it needs this, it needs that. No, I liked it as, just how it was. And um, so Pete helped me to get a distribution situation. Um, he helped me to find some guys to plug it, you know, at the radio and stuff like that. We didn't spend a fortune. And um, so that's how it started. And um, it it's grown into a nice situation. And as I say, I made a, I don't know how many albums. and uh, But it's difficult to do it on a large scale, which is my one regret, if I have a regret is that I have not done it, I've not established myself in the US as a solo artist, whereas in, in the UK I've done it simply by going round and round and round and, and playing the live gigs and building up a following and getting played on the radio and all the rest of it. I would have loved, I mean, I know a lot of my friends who made, you know, got their position in, in the US.
US and, and it's the place to be touring and making rock and roll. We can't have everything. I mean, I've got my lovely family. I've got a good business. I'm okay. And you have your new album. Are, are you happy with the new album? I mean, I, I'm, I'm an album guy and it's, it's 10 tracks, which I love. Because, you know, I, I have, sometimes you get an album and you, you just want to hear 10 tracks. You know, you want to hear 40, 40 minutes. You don't want to hear, you know, because they always do no. the re-release. There's 87 tracks. I don't no. want to hear that. I agree. Did you did you start off? I mean, how many songs did you take to whittle down to the final 10? <laughs> Are you kidding? As soon as I got 10, that's it. That's the album <laughs> done, as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, no, I'm not one of those guys who have that a million songs lying around. No, these are all brand new, really. Uh, apart from one, there's one cover on there. By the way, I sent you a link. I don't know if you got it. I listened to Did it. Did you get it? Yeah, I listened oh, to yeah. it. I like it. It, it's, it's, it is. It's bluesy. It has some slow yeah. stuff. And I was going to ask you about the album because people know you, you know, as with a great voice. And I know your first video you came out with was this one, You're Not Alone. Now, did you, in a marketing aspect, did you sit there and say, I'm going to hit them with something a little bit slower first because that's what they understand, that's what they expect from me, and then your second your second uh, video and song is a little bit you know, more upbeat. How did you choose You're Not Alone as your first single? Well, I took some advice from people who, I, I said, what do you think? And they, they, people really went for that song. And they felt that it was, um, at that time, it's a few months ago now, it, 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 it struck a chord. You know, still so much anxiety knocking around and um, with the COVID and everything. And um, people, we I played it to some people who know about the radio, which I kind of don't worry about too much now. I had a great long run at mainstream radio in the UK but now I'm not so sure I take the right boxes anymore but they said that is a song that's got a chance to get on the radio and it and it was on mainstream radio here in the UK what's it about what's the meaning of that song well it's definitely a, it's written in during the early lockdown as I say I never have a concept of I'm going to write a song about this that or the other a lot of this stuff comes out subconsciously. And um, I knew a couple of people, one in particular, who was, you know, having a hard time with anxiety issues and um, worrying about, you know, COVID and all the rest of it and um, some, some other things. And it was just a feeling of support, really, a, a, a way to support them. I, I think, actually, I stole it off the... I was listening to a talk radio program. I remember some guy saying, well, if you think the world's going mad, you're not alone. I thought, that's, that's what I'm looking for. Now, now, you made a video for it. What's it like when you're making these videos? Because, you know, you've been in bands back when the videos were huge, and I know I've heard horror stories of certain bands where they paid so much for a damn video and they're like, wait, wait, we didn't really, wait, wait, we have to pay for that? Wait, you're bringing yeah. in this director who costs, you know, 80, you know, we got to pay for that? What was it like making it, what was it like making videos back then? Did you enjoy videos back being in videos? I hated it. Why? Absolutely. I didn't look the part at all. You know, I look more the part now, I'm turned 70 this year, I look more the part now than I did when I was 35, you know. <laughs> My hair was falling out, and I absolutely hated it. 
Um, but I still managed to make a couple of those expensive ones that you're talking about that bankrupted that album. You know, I'm still paying for them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> somebody somebody picked up a couple of my um, old, old back catalogue. In fact, the one with Don't Shed a Tear on it. And I think I still owe them like half a million quid or something. And those videos were costing, you know, minimum 100 grand. This is ridiculous. The ones we make now, we just make them ourselves. You know, it costs nothing, really. Well... Nothing. Now, do you play all the instruments on this album? Most. Um, up until right close to the end, I'd played everything, and I was, you know, engineering and everything. I'd use some. I'd use samples for horn section type sounds, but once the restrictions became a little less restrictive we thought you know we have to make it authentic we have to get the real guys in so we got we got the real guys in to do it i have a sax player in my band and steve baton he plays on a lot of the tracks but i also have um a fantastic section made up of steve peewee ellis no less from james brown um in fact he wrote one of the arrangements um yeah so then we got the real guys in but apart from that, pretty much everything, yeah. Now, you're, you're, you have some shows coming up. Now, you have a festival coming up, I believe, in August? We yes. played a festival last week. Do you have another one coming was, up? We have another one coming up in August, yeah. What was it like playing last week? What was I know I saw you at the 26th. What was it like being back on stage? Because do you forget? Like, do you sit there and go, I've been doing this my whole life, but I haven't been on for a while. What was it like? It was fantastic, actually. Um, I mean, I've got a great band. We've been with me 20-odd years. We have a huge repertoire. But we had a great set going last year. And we have a live version of that set. And we all studied at home before the show. Everybody studied. And we played, basically, the set that we finished on last March, or March before, March 2020. And... Yeah, a little bit weird at first because we didn't even have a sound check, but we've got that down now, you know. And um, a little bit caught in the car headlights for a couple of songs, but then it was just great. And it pissed it down with rain the whole night, but everybody was out there outdoors, and they all loved it. They're just determined to have a good time. Well, I, I think what it is, and I, I, you know, I live in, I live outside Philadelphia, and I'm, I'm actually going to see Squeeze on Saturday. But, oh, yeah, yeah, with their, with Hall and Oates. It's called the Hoagie, the Hoagie Nation. Yeah, yeah. I just interviewed Glenn last week, so uh -huh. I'm going. But we've been going. Me and my buddies have been going to seeing, you know, cover bands just outside because all the things, and it's amazing the energy. People are just so happy to see music as a performer. You must really feel that energy because it's like, holy crap. It's music. It's not on the internet. It's in front of us. I mean, does it? Is it a different energy than you've felt before, and just the positiveness? Yeah, it's funny because that's how it was the night we stopped in March 2020. It was we played the London Palladium, and you know, London's notoriously usually a bit cool, but um, <laughs> the spirit in there was just fantastic. It's like everybody had knew that it was all going to be coming to an end and they didn't know when it's going to open up again. And that was a fantastic feeling. And it was a really great night. 
but um, yeah, I mean, it's what I've done my whole life from you know leaving school, sixteen, and um, it's all I know how to do. Um, it's funny because <laughs> we had a five-hour drive up to this place in really heavy traffic. We were on at quarter past ten. We played the show. It was chucking it down with rain. We drove. It took us three hours to get back home. So it's nearly four o'clock in the morning time we get home, and we thought, ah, but that was great. <laughs> you know? Now, now, what do you play on your set? My body was like, hang on a minute. I thought we'd given all this shit up. You know what's going on? <laughs> what, what is your set list like when you're going to go on tour uh, on the in the fall? Hopefully, we're all hoping. Um, what 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 is your set? Do you put a bunch of independent stuff? Do you put you know some mic and the mechanics? Do you put you know, do you play Tempted? I mean, how do you put that set together? And are you allowed to play some of those songs if you didn't write them? Oh, sure. Anybody can play them. You can play them. If, you know, um doesn't mean I get any money from them, but <laughs> at least I can still... No, I, th I, I, I think that's fair. I think people kind of expect it now that, you know, they get the picture. It's took me years and years to establish that fact that I sang that song, you know, I sang The Living Years. I sang How Long, oh, right, okay. Because it's like, it used to be Paul Garrett, never heard of him. Yeah, you've heard of How Long Is This? Oh, yeah, that's a great song. <laughs> well, that means... um, so there's there's about six, seven, eight songs always in there, Tempted, Living Years, How Long, a couple of Mike and the Mechanics hits over my shoulder, Living Years, all that. Um, and then there's the stuff that I've done um, you know independently, the solo stuff because a lot of that got very good airplay here in the UK You know, a lot of those songs are really well known Now but, will you be playing stuff off the new album? Um, that's the idea we won't be playing it at the weekend because the band haven't played it yet <laughs> they've heard it and they like it and they're looking forward to playing it but um the plan is September. I'm coming to the States as part of Eric Clapton's band, All Being Well. Um, in October, we got some UK dates and dates in Holland, and that's where we'll have the some new material in there. We'll work it up. What is your favorite song from the new album? Oh, God. I think it's a track called Shame on You. And why? <laughs> well, I like it. I, I like the groove on it. I like everything about it. I actually wrote it about my neighbor who I'm having a bit of grief with. <laughs> What's going on? What's going on with your neighbor? No, so I got a great song out of it. <laughs> What's your neighbor do? Because I, I had a neighbor that wasn't cleaning up ripped, after their dog. He ripped down this wonderful old hedge that borders onto his woodland. And um, he, he, didn't, he, he didn't tell us he was going to do it or anything. And as transpired, he had no right to do it. So, um, but he doesn't even want to pay for the replacement. I, I shouldn't be telling you this stuff. Yeah. One final question. What, who is someone that you worked with, or you can name two or three people that you just were like, wow. And I mean, I know you've recorded in session with Elton John and all these people. Who was one just sat there and were like, holy crap, this is, this is like an aha moment. I've had plenty of those with, um, as I say, playing in, in the Eric Clapton band for the last eight, nine years, might be longer. Long. And, and, and all, some of the great music, not just Eric, but the guys he's, I've got to play with Steve Gadd, Steve Jordan, 
who are just here playing on the Rolling Stones tour. Um, Willie Weeks, uh, Chris Stainton, Doyle Brammel. Um, oh, I'm having one of those moments, I can't remember. Names. Nathan. Nathan, thank God. Nathan East. I hope I haven't forgotten anybody. I probably have. Well, obviously I have because there have been so many. But for me, as I say, as this independent guy, quite happy doing my own little thing. But then to get amongst these world-class people and accepted and respected from then has been really great for me, actually. And so there have been a lot of those moments you're talking about. Well, I want to thank you, Paul. Which, also, you do have great hats. I, I watch your stuff. I, I always appreciate a hat man. You know, me and him were talking earlier about it. We, it's, he sees my hats. He, he all, he looks good in the hat. I don't think if I wore the hat he's wearing right now, I think I'd look like a like Smokey the Bear. It wouldn't look good on me, but it looks good. I don't know what it is. Like these look good on me. But I want to thank you for coming on, people. You have to go to the website paulcarrick.net. It has everything. It has his bio. It has his live shows. It has his singles. It has and your the album comes out September. 17th I believe yeah and you can pre-order it there so people go go listen to Paul's music go buy his music when he comes in concert go see him and go to my website coopertalk.net I'm also on that we're both nets uh, email me at cooper coopertalk.net remember I'm Steve Cooper I'm only as hip as my guests don't forget drink your water eat your vegetables take your vitamins and I'll talk to you guys next time thank you Paul